0: You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a podcast that's all about supporting parents as they bring up children. We've got experts and advice to help you through the more challenging bits of parenting. I'm Siobhan Hunt. Georgie Dent is one of the most calm, charismatic and in-control women I know. She has three girls, a thriving career as a writer and now author, and always seems totally on top of her game. But this wasn't always the case. In her 20s, Georgie had a breakdown. Her book, Breaking Badly, tells this story in the hope of helping other people who may be suffering or have suffered something similar. Hi, Georgie. How are you?
1: Hello. I'm well, thank you. And I already feel <laughs> like I need to correct the record. <laughs> I am not sure that I am always calm and in control. That's but how is... I see you. Mm. Which is kind
0: of interesting, isn't it, really? Because I'm curious to know what you're like in your 20s. Um, The Georgie we meet today, when I see you, I see someone who is, as I mentioned, on top of their game, immaculately dressed, beautiful, all of those things. Mm. What would it be like if I met the Georgie of your 20s? Do you think I'd have a similar impression?
1: It's possible that you would, yes. And I do think, I mean, I am karma uh, now I think than I, that I was back then but I, do, I think that I have always had uh, a, a a different outer persona to what is necessarily going on under the surface and particularly when I was um, in my early 20s. so I when I was 19 I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease, which is an autoimmune disease of the stomach. It's not pleasant at all. Um, and I also was diagnosed with endometriosis. And so I ended up having – I had three surgeries for endometriosis basically because I had this horrendous pelvic pain all the time and a horrendous stomach. So both of these conditions were diagnosed at, you know, within a few months of each other. Uh, because of the Crohn's, I was on some fairly unpleasant medication um, to manage the symptoms. And so there was certainly – I wasn't physically well – uh, but I was quite adamant that I didn't want to be sick. And so I really did try as hard as I could to pretend I wasn't sick. I mean, I always went to my doctor's appointments. I always took the medication. I did whatever I was told. But I didn't I didn't feel able to sort of cut myself a break and to say to people, actually, I feel terrible. Um, and I did feel terrible. Did
0: that mean that... I imagine in your 20s there's a lot of socialising going on, whether that's just with friends or for work because you're a lawyer. Was that part of that not saying no to things? Because when you're sick like that, resting is probably the best thing you can do or the kindest thing you can do for yourself. Yes. Did that mean that you said yes to a lot of things where you could have said no? And
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I did, I, I mean, I did that, um you know, I mean, one of the things that, obviously having now written a book about the experience, I have had a lot of time to reflect on exactly what happened and why things happened. And I think that I really did try and deny the fact that I had physical illness. And because I was denying that, I really didn't think I had any grounds whatsoever to be suffering. Um, I was very conscious of the fact that I was so fortunate. Um, I was really aware from a young age that I was born into a family that was stable and loving and I had a great relationship with my siblings and my parents. I was given so many amazing opportunities because of that. And I really didn't feel like I had any legitimate grounds for saying my life is difficult, but my life was difficult. Um, And I think that the physical illness was the one part that I think if I had sort of been brave enough or kind enough to say, actually, do you know what? You're dealing with something that's really real and it's physical and the ramifications are are happening. So take a break. But I just didn't ever, I didn't see that as an option and ultimately that accelerated and led to my physical demise. So when we talk
0: about your life in your 20s, apart from that diagnosis, what else was going on for you? Because it
1: sounds like you were leading quite an intense life anyway yeah so i um I grew up in Lismore in northern New South Wales, and uh, when I was in year nine, I moved to Brisbane to boarding school, which um my brother and sister did as well. And my parents are both from the country. They both got sent to boarding schools in Sydney from a young age. It was just sort of what we did. It wasn't because we were unloved or <laughs> terrifically naughty. Um, but so we went to boarding school and so, and I uh, lived in Brisbane for school. And then I did a, I did uni and I did a double degree in business and law. And I studied in Brisbane. Uh, and I did clerkships with a couple of different law firms. And I was offered a graduate position with one of them. And I asked for the graduate position to be in Sydney. Um, because I had sort of always wanted to, my sister had actually come to Sydney for uni. I had, I wanted to come to Sydney and, um, it worked out quite well because I actually met a boy who is now my husband. Uh, I met him on holidays in my, the penultimate year of university and he lived in Sydney. Um, and when we met, I had actually already been offered a job in Sydney for the next year. So it was quite fortuitous that we met. We did a year long distance. Um, so then when I graduated from uni, I moved To Sydney, and I um, rented a house in Darlinghurst with four other girls, um, all of whom had studied together in Brisbane. We hadn't all done law, but we were all coming down at the same time. And so we each basically moved down and started our new graduate jobs. Um, And my experience was that I, throughout uni, I had been able to manage Crohn's fairly well. You know, it wasn't amazing, I didn't feel amazing, but I wasn't hospitalised regularly. When I got to Sydney and started work, you know, I worked in a law firm. Big law firms, There's the demands are intense. The workload is intense. It's high stress. It's high pressure. Um, and for me, I did just become increasingly anxious and increasingly unwell. Um, and so there were times when I was sort of admitted to hospital for just for a night or, or things like that because my Crohn's was quite bad. Um, I can't imagine that you, under those
0: that kind of situation, you would have necessarily been watching what you eat even had you not had Crohn's because I can imagine, I know friends who've worked in that environment and it sounds like they hardly have time for lunch, let alone making sure that lunch is what you need.
1: Yeah. Well, when I moved down to Sydney, I actually got, um, I quite quickly got put onto a GP who is now quite a high profile federal member of parliament, but so Karen Phelps um, has, her partner actually has Crohn's disease. And someone had said to me, you know, when you get to Sydney, use her as your GP. And she was actually terrific because um, obviously I had a gastroenterologist, but your GP is who you see more regularly. And she was quite big on um, sort of diet. And so I was really strict about the fact that I, I was off gluten for about two years at a different point. So I was quite conscious of Of what I was eating and that did help to an extent Um, but ultimately more than the food I was or wasn't eating it was this I just became accustomed to living in a highly stressed zone and I actually genuinely didn't know there was any other way to be you know it happened it's the frog in boiling water it happened gradually and I was literally frazzled all the time Um, and I was I, I lost quite a bit of weight and I was already quite thin because of Crohn's disease. And I was, um, I was really struggling, you know, and, and my, uh, after that first year that I'd been in Sydney, um, Nick and I, my boyfriend, who's now my husband, we moved out together and we rented a tiny 36 square meter apartment, um, in Eastern Sydney or you know, so that was quite an exciting thing and we were you know I, he was still at uni he was studying um medicine and he was also playing um football sort of semi professionally so he was between canberra and sydney we had quite a busy life my job was very demanding but there was also this sense that i was just getting on with things that i was going through the motions um and then it sort of once things started to come unstuck it then unraveled fairly quickly
0: We'll be back with Georgie Dent right after this. When you become a parent, you enter an exclusive club, one that only other parents can truly understand.
1: I spent a lot of time running and yelling names. Come back, get back here. But I bought him one of those backpacks that had a lead, like, you know, a monkey one. Because it doesn't look as bad. Yeah. Like a disguise.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The Parent Panel is a weekly podcast that invites adults to ponder the big questions of looking after small children with more than a bit of humour mixed in. Join us for The Parent Panel wherever you get your podcasts. You mentioned in the introduction to your book that even though all of these things were going on, like your health and the intensity of your life, that those weren't actually the problem, that the problem was negative self-talk, which when you talk, when you actually articulate that was what was happening, I think a lot of people can identify with that. It's something that lots of people do. Where do you think that starts though? I can see it getting worse as things get harder. But where does it start? Why do you think you get on a path like that that
1: leads to such a stressful and painful place? That's a it's a really good question, and that was one of the first questions actually that um, my husband asked me after he read the first draft of the book because he's like, it's such a fundamental thing, you know, why did you start out from a position of sort of low self esteem and low self belief, and I don't. Know the answer uh, to that, but I do know that for me, and you know, when I first started writing this book, the publisher, um, one of the women that I was working with on the book, sort of said to me, I want you to try and think about when this first, you know, if you were going to tell me a point in time when you think your breakdown became inevitable, when was it? And I, it actually didn't take me long at all to realize that it probably came that very first appointment I had with a gynecologist when I was 19 and it was the diagnosis of endometriosis and basically him saying you need to have three surgeries in the next six weeks and um, I found that very scary but it also for some reason I really personalized the fact that there was something physically wrong with me and I took that to then mean that I was slightly defective Um, and then it was about three months after I'd had those operations that I was then diagnosed with Crohn's disease, and that sort of just, you know, compounded. Well, it's hard not to take that personally. It's your body.
0: It's your life that's being impacted by it. Yes. It's interesting that that crosses over into your sense of self.
1: Yeah, and for some reason for me it really did, and I really took it to heart that there was something very wrong with me, because my body didn't work the way it was supposed to work or the way I wanted it to work, which was in a way that didn't interfere with my life. I didn't want to feel sick. I didn't want to be in pain. Um, And I think it was uh, a vicious cycle for, you know, it really was to... And I think also I was young at that point. You know, even just little things at 19 having the internal examinations with a doctor, it felt quite, it was absolutely nothing untoward about that. He was perfectly professional, but it was really, it felt violating. um, And I think that, I mean, I also talk in the book about the fact that, you know, there were a couple of broad problems that I had. Anxiety was was one of them, which ultimately I was diagnosed with having, but also perfectionism. And I think that's, that's partly there's a connection i think between my perception of being diagnosed with illness and perfectionism because it was it was such a big flaw in my mind that it was you know proof that i wasn't good enough that i wasn't perfect and as somebody with perfectionist tendencies that's really corrosive um and i think it's also important and this is one of the things that i talk about in the book is that it's really easy to fall for the line that perfectionism is sort of a humble brag that it actually means I just have terrifically high standards and I'm excellent at everything, <laughs> <laughs> yes. which is not actually what perfectionism is. Perfectionism is when you feel like you have to achieve because without that you are nothing. And I really did, you know that. that I think that was partly why I was on this. Um, treadmill, I suppose, where I was trying to do the right things. I went to, you know, I, when I started studying law and business, I actually did really well at law. And so I did get job offers. I got clerkships and it was, I didn't desperately want to be a corporate lawyer, but the firms were good jobs and it was very clear that everyone at uni wanted those positions. So then you get one and then you buy into that process that this is what you do. And so then I did move down to Sydney and, you know, I was, I was very conscious of the fact that this was the done thing. And it's important, I think, to recognize I didn't have uh, parents putting pressure on me in that way. They were quite genuinely worried and critical of my work from the very beginning because they could see it wasn't working out particularly well for me. So I was very much the person. I was the punisher. Um, mm. Well, it sounds
0: like that even when you talk about um, how you felt about your illness and it being a, a flaw. Um You can't actually get much meaner than that to yourself, can you? Like you're suffering and you're in pain. Yeah. And you're feeling that this is somehow a flaw of your own, like you're responsible for that. Yeah. Um, That seems quite a clear start to a negative approach to yourself, but something that comes so naturally to people. Um, I know myself, I have those sorts of thoughts, those, you know, imposter syndrome. So many people have that. So many women have that, especially when they become mothers, like, oh, mm. I don't know what I'm doing, mm. I'm hopeless, etc. cetera. Um, but it sounds, I mean, I can't obviously give away what happens in the book, but you turned that around. You recognised that the thinking, I mean, I don't know if that was on reflection or was that part of your rec- recovery, understanding that your thought process was what undid you in the end.
1: Yeah, it, that was... Fairly critical, that was a critical component of my recovery. Um, so basically, um, I, uh, so my, as I said earlier, my Crohn's was bad. I wasn't well. I was really stressed all the time. And um, it was about April, I think, that I fell over one night at work with this sort of crazy vertigo attack. So if someone had said to me that an earthquake had hit, I would have believed them because it felt like something had like literally I just lost balance and I fell over and one of the fellow grads he was in my office at the time and we were chatting and he sort of um, freaked out freaked out (laughs) went and went around another one ran and got another one of our friends and she came over and they were like hey have some water let's see and I just felt I sort of was sitting up and I just felt really uneasy I felt dizzy a little bit nauseous so um, they took me downstairs and put me in a taxi and I went home to um, the apartment that Nick and I were sharing, and he was in Canberra that night. I think because he wasn't home, and I just went to bed. And it was quite early to be home. You know, it was seven thirty. That was a very early night to be leaving the law firm, and I went to sleep, sort of thinking, "Great, I'll wake up in the morning and I'll be fine." And I wasn't. I, I I couldn't actually get to work the next day, which was a really big thing for me because I persevered a lot. There were a lot of days where I was well within the bounds of humanity to have a sick day and I didn't. But on this particular day, I was so dizzy um, that I couldn't. And it's, it, I mean, you have to read the book to get the full story of what happened. But basically that was the beginning of four months where I was dizzy all the time. I couldn't, I w- my balance was off. So I couldn't easily walk around. I couldn't do, I couldn't live basically independently anymore. I ended up taking You know, it happened in different phases. I initially took, I saw an ENT and he said, I think you need a week off. I think, you know, your body is, something's happening here in this dizziness, you need to take a break. So I took a break, I took a week off work and I flew home to mum and dad's place and it was the most stressful week Almost of my life because I was like, Stop stressing. You have got to stop stressing. Oh, God. And I'm like, What's the right way things. to do this? And mum and dad were going off to work. And I was like, Right, they're going to work and I've got to de stress. And <laughs> I couldn't de stress. And it was like, <laughs> of course not. It, I couldn't. And I couldn't yeah. read because I felt guilty for reading. And then I, it was just an absolute nightmare. Anyway, unsurprisingly, I didn't end <laughs> that week feeling better. So I went back to Sydney, started back at work. And then it just, it unraveled, basically, and then I ended up having to take an extended period of unpaid leave from work. I moved back home with mum and dad because basically I needed a carer, and mum took carer's leave um, from her job and basically took on the very thank thankless, demanding job of becoming my carer. <laughs> and I was ultimately at their place for about three months, mainly on their couch, mainly sobbing or yelling at her. Uh, and you know, she had said to me on a number of occasions well before this point that perhaps maybe anxiety was something we should talk about. And I was furious at even the suggestion because as I said, I was like, Mum, if physically I am better, I won't be stressed. I won't be anxious. Okay. So let's just focus on the fact that some, someone has to tell me why my body's doing this. I'm so dizzy. My Crohn's is going, you know, berserk. And she was obviously just beside herself because she couldn't get through to me. And then eventually a lovely, lovely 70-year-old physician in Lismore, and I was on the medical merry-go-round. I saw so many doctors and so many naturopaths and yoga gurus and acupuncturists and GPs and specialists, neurologists. I did, we just did everything to try and find out what was wrong with me. And eventually I went and saw this physician and he looked at me and he said, Georgie, I'm so sorry for what you're going through. This is awful. And it was the most validating thing a doctor has ever said to me, and it made me cry. And he just said to me, look, in my medical career you know, that spanned almost 50 years, whenever I've got a patient with unexplained physical symptoms, it is always stress. And he said, I'm not saying what you're experiencing isn't real, because it is. And he said, but I see this. When I've got a patient with diabetes and there's a spike and we can't explain it, it's always stress. And we have to deal with that. And that was ultimately the turning point. I mean, I was in a bad place at that moment, at that point in time. My mental health had really deteriorated. I mean, I was very highly anxious and frazzled to begin with. By this stage in the journey, I was really depressed as well um, because I was terrified. I genuinely thought I was going to spend the rest of my life on my parents' couch. And I really love my parents, but that wasn't quite the life I had envisaged no, no. of, of living on their couch. And so the physician said to me, I want you to see a psychiatrist. Let's get you in tomorrow morning. I think you probably need to go to a you know, be an inpatient in a psychiatric hospital for rehab purposes. And I did that.
0: Did that scare you? Because there's a lot of stigma around. I mean, you already had your own fear related to being so-called flawed. Yeah. Society in general, you say you... You go into a psych ward and
1: Yeah. It's not um so I was terrified but I was also I I felt relieved and it I mean, I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but it was it really was an incredible point of realization for me because when he said that, I realised that there was something wrong with me but not not I didn't feel guilty about it and I didn't feel like oh my god you are just absolutely hopeless which is what I had been feeling I just thought oh dear lord you can't do this like your body and your mind cannot it's not sustainable and I knew that and I was terrified and I wanted a solution and so it was I think it was about another 10 days after that before I actually went to I went and saw the psychiatrist the next day and then it took a bit of time to for things to you know For me to get a spot, and it was a um, a private hospital. I had health insurance, so it covered it. But it certainly wasn't glamorous. It's you know basic, basic um, place, and the drive there was absolutely horrendous. So it was at Currumbin, which is um, on the Gold Coast, and it's a it's a I think it's about two hours from Mum and Dad's place in Lismore, and we had to stop the car. Mum and Dad drove me up there. Pretty sure that wasn't a milestone they ever thought that they were going to be celebrating uh, when the day they get to drive their daughter to rehab. Um, and I didn't even have like a drug addiction. So it wasn't even, <laughs> there was nothing fun yes. about it. <laughs> yeah, no. And we had to, I had to get dad to pull over the car about six times on the car trip because I just wanted to be sick and I couldn't, I, I was dry retching. I was terrified. Uh, and then when I got there, also terrifying because it is, it was a sad looking building. And, you know, there are locked doors and then you get let in 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 the waiting room. There are lots of people being, you know, ready to be admitted and they are some sad, sad situations. And I was one of them. You know, my parents looked as miserable as everybody else did because, you know, the the facility was, it had um, two wards. One was for mood disorders, so, you know, anxiety, depression and everything else um, sort of mood-related. And then there was also drug and alcohol. Um, And so... Ultimately, there was no one being admitted there that wasn't at rock bottom and they had people who loved them by their side. So that was a very confronting situation. Um, but then it was so strange because when I got admitted and they took me to my room and I was sharing a room with a really lovely woman called Sue who was fif- in her 50s and her two, she had two daughters um, who had dropped her off, adult daughters. Her daughters were actually probably around my age. I was 25 at this point and she'd had breast cancer and the treatment had made her quite sick and she had sort of become really unwell over that journey and it was so it was quite similar in a way. We obviously had really different physical conditions, but our stories were quite similar and she was lovely. And as soon as I was there, I actually felt free. And that sounds so strange, but I I, I just I felt independent and i felt like i actually need to be here this is what i need and i can't explain really why i didn't feel having felt so keenly the pressure of other people's expectations i don't know why being in rehab wasn't horrendous but i think the point is i realized that i had to i had to do things differently and i couldn't punish myself unnecessarily for everything and when I was in rehab, you know, it was – I was there for two and a half weeks and you basically – you see, you know, there's a GP, there's a psychiatrist, there's psychologists, there's social workers and your day is quite structured and you don't have to do everything. Um, you have to turn up to your medical appointments but the group therapy sessions are optional. Um, but my days were filled but it was a very – you could wear your pyjamas to all of your sessions because it's all in the same building um, and you could – You know, I I really was, it was like this intensive turbocharged therapy for two and a half weeks. And there is absolutely no way I could have gleaned the perspective that I did if I had been in Sydney and just started seeing a psychologist once a week in my lunch break. There's no way I could have absorbed and changed the way that I did when I was in rehab because I was talking about everything because I really did realise there was nothing left to lose because things had got this bad And this is where I was. And by talking uh, in those group therapy sessions and listening to everybody else, one of the really common themes that emerged was that all of them, like me, were punishing themselves for being in this position. And it was that we, it was sort of when I was looking in at that, it's like, you don't need, you know, you're doing your best. This is a hard situation and you are doing your absolute best. So don't beat yourself up. And and they were the conversations that we would actually have, and I was realizing that so much of what I was engaging with mentally was toxic, and it wasn't. It was making me miserable, and ultimately, it actually physically made me really sick. You
0: mentioned that at the beginning about um, even though you had physical illnesses that were taking a physical toll on you, that you were very conscious of the fact that you had a lovely family, a great start to life, and that you therefore weren't um, allowed to suffer. Hmm. Um, now, obviously, those two physical conditions were suffering. Um, do you see that this this kind of I don't have a right to suffer is, is kind of relative in a way? Like even if you hadn't had those physical illnesses, you probably would have been as unkind to yourself, do you think, because of that idea that you had to be
1: perfect? Yes. Yes. I think, I think definitely. And I think one of the things was that even in writing this book, I said to Nick quite a few times, I just have absolutely no right to write this book. I did not even, you know, and I don't want to be flippant, but I didn't um, have horrendous depression. I mean, I did, but it was quite situational. Uh, but I didn't um, attempt to end my life and I never even thought about doing that and I you know again I read these read other people's books and it's like I haven't had the trauma of your childhood How, who am I to suffer and I had these conversations a lot and every time Nick would say the same thing which was that's actually why your story matters because there is still this um, this expectation that you know mental illness can only affect you if you are in a certain situation. And actually that's one of the hardest things for people who are suffering with it is not feeling like they're entitled to be suffering from it. And I mean, that's the awful thing that you can be incredibly rich and incredibly poor and that won't have a bearing on, on your uh, mental health necessarily. I mean, it can, but uh, you can have a lovely supportive family. You can have amazing friends. You can have an excellent job. You can have so many opportunities, but you can still suffer. um, And it's suffering. And that's,
0: what the Buddhists say anyway. You're a Buddhist. Life is suffering. But there's a truth in that, isn't there? You can't yeah. compare yourself, but people do it, and that's what's so
1: Yeah, they do. Ultimately. And I think, you know, I, I have said to quite a few people, my experience is very extreme. You know, I, I don't think, I mean, I don't think as a proportion of the population, not many of us are going to be admitted into a psychiatric hospital because things have got that um, terrible. But I know how many people live in the zone that I was living in, N- not in the sort of two or three months before I fell apart, but in, in the 12 months before that. I know so many people who live in that world. And I can still, you know, it, I, I I have to manage my mental health um, and it's not a sort of set and forget exercise that, right, I, I came out of rehab once and recovered so then I don't ever have to think about it again. It's very much um, a constant work in progress because it's life. um. But I think that you, it, it is possible to, um, to to recognise what the, the habits that you have, um, and to change them.
0: So in terms of managing your mental health now, as you mentioned, it's not a set and forget.
1: Do you what works for you? Because it'll be different for everyone. Yeah. But what are the things that help you? So I was um, put on medication, uh, basically just when I went to rehab um, and I have stayed on that medication. I've been very lucky in that I've been on the same dose and the same drug the whole time and it was safe for pregnancies and for breastfeeding uh, and I've we've never tinkered with that because it's worked. So certainly for me medication was, was and is something that's important. Uh, therapy was really important. So obviously I had a really intense two and a half weeks in rehab where I literally was, you know, it was almost the whole day, every day, it was, was just therapy of different f- forms in group format with a social worker, um, with a psychologist, with a psychiatrist. So it was very intense. But then when I uh, sort of started to return to life and I came back to Sydney, I was referred immediately to a psychologist. And I was seeing her initially at least once a week, but sometimes more. Uh, and then, but within a year, I wasn't seeing her. It was sort of monthly. Um, and then... At different points, I have gone back to not to her in particular. She moved to New York, but I have I have seen, I sort of have psychologists in my repertoire. Um, How important and, is it to your recovery that it's the
0: right psychologist?
1: Um, I think it. I think having the right um, relationship matters, and actually, something that I have talked to friends about, and and it's not something that I have. Um, Suffered from, But initially, when I used to go and see doctors, I always put on a very uh, in control f- persona, which is probably what you have noticed about <laughs> me. Um, and I didn't like to tell them when I was suffering. And I know people and I've had friends who've said that they've done that even with psychologists. So I think it is critical to get someone where you are brutally honest with them. And you obviously have to have the rapport to do that. Um, but I really found when I went to rehab, it didn't matter. There were a variety of people that I saw and some of them, you know, you see them. Um, I saw the same people quite a few times, but there were, there were men, there were women, there were different ages, um, who ran sessions and did things. And I, I suppose in one way, it depends how desperate you are for help. I was so in need of help at that point that I think any qualified professional was going to be of use to me. Um, I think when I came back to Sydney, the psychologist I had was particularly, um, and I think really that was just luck, Um, but she was particularly, uh, I really respected her enormously and we had a great relationship. And I think, I I, I thought that I was lucky at the time because I think it probably would have been different if, um, but also I think I was just in the space then that I knew what I needed to do, which was be really honest about what I was feeling and uh, work through all of the issues
0: that I had. So you've mentioned their medication therapy, um, but constant mental health now. Um, I imagine therapy is something that when you need it, you can dip back into. Yeah. As you said, you have mm. your collection that you yes. like. Um, are there any other things that help you? Because you do have a really – well, it seems that you have a very busy life now. You, yeah, you I d- work, you've got three children, you've got a partner.
1: Yep, yep, it is. And, and so the thing is um, – I do actually have a fairly decent threshold for managing stress now because I'm not stressed all the time. I I, I don't mean managing stress. I mean that I am able to, on the whole, manage the competing interests of my life and they are fairly significant because we do have three kids. We don't have family in Sydney. My husband's job is ridiculous. Um, I am freelance, so I'm wearing lots of different hats. There's always different deadlines. Um, and I'm able to manage that, uh, but I, I have to always be aware of where my stress levels are. Um, and w- that's when things like, particularly when I, was, when I first got sick and was getting better, exercise was amazing for me because I just genuinely thought when I started at the law firm, I was like, exercise is only for people who have time for that. Like, what, what, when would I ever make time for that? That wouldn't happen. And, I mean, I wasn't ever particularly... I've never been like a mad fitness person, but I really was quite dismissive of that. Um, Whereas when I started to get better, and I think because physically I lost control of everything for, you know, I I spent four months not being able to live effectively. So being able to move again was actually legitimately thrilling. You know, being able to, at at rehab they did, they had really gentle um, yoga classes and they had like a little gym and they had, we would go for walks, you know, guided walks with people. We weren't like in handcuffs, but we were in. uh, And, you know, I I actually really started to process how I felt, you know, in a positive way. And I sort of started to make that connection that actually I don't need to live with a racing, you know, chest and struggling to breathe and every second breath is, you know, which was – that was just how I lived. And so I sort of did have this awakening where I was like, okay, different way, breathe, stay calm, actually think about – staying calm you know I did meditation classes there I did breathing classes and I was like who knew you even knew who knew you had to learn yes how to breathe but then as (laughs) soon as I sat there I was like oh my god yeah okay so my breathing has been problematic my whole life and so I became more aware of um physiologically everything that was happening in my body and not in a sort of critical way but just in a okay so what's happening right now and so I did um exercise is important And also sleep and, you know, just kind of taking stock of where I am and how frazzled I am. And, you know, it's okay to have an afternoon where things are going badly and you're feeling stressed, but if that's becoming your whole week, for my whole week I I need to step back and think about what can I do. Um, Obviously having children is really difficult for that because...
0: You don't get to choose. No.
1: And three-year-olds, really stressful to live with. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> really stressful. They're like, sorry, mummy, not time off. You know, they don't take a weekend. No, they, they don't. They are there and ready, throwing <laughs> stress at you. Um,
0: Especially when you have to get out the door on time.
1: Yes, if there's anywhere to go. And that's the problem with having three because the little three-year-old is forever being dragged around to everything. So it's, um, look, she's within her well, as my dad always says, three-year-olds are not known for being reasonable. They aren't. And it's their prerogative and we <laughs> just have to somehow survive. Uh, but they do provide me with constant need to reassess how I'm managing my stress
0: yeah, levels. Because it's emotional stress as well with children. It's not just the the need to get to a deadline. It's, it's emotional. It must be yeah. difficult sometimes not to allow that what you were previously used to to come sneak back in with kids because they have a way of making you feel guilty about stuff.
1: Yeah, they do. And also I think that there is, um, when, when we ended up having our first baby, I was actually quite grateful that I had experienced what I had when I fell apart because I really did. After rehab, I came back to Sydney, um, a couple of weeks after that and, Nick and I had, because when it rains it pours, in the middle of me being completely bedridden at mum and dad's in Lismore, our landlord, so we'd we'd signed a 12-month lease in the January and in the July the landlord said, we're cancelling the lease, you've got to move out in two weeks. And it was like, okay, terrific. And so we had actually moved out of our apartment, um, which was quite upsetting for me because, well, everything was upsetting for me at that point, but it was like that was my one little hold on my life down here. and. But anyway, so Nick and I had moved our stuff into storage and he was, I think he was, and I can't actually remember what he was doing, but he was living between Canberra and Sydney. So he was sort of flatting at different places. But when I moved back to Sydney, um, some relatives who'd kindly had our furniture in their garage as storage were going overseas for a month. So they said, why don't you guys house sit? So we uh, sort of started living back together and I started working at David Jones selling clothes, casually. Um, just you know, doing a couple of shifts a week, and then gradually it built back up. Um, but really, I was at that point a clean slate. There was there was nothing. I wasn't I wasn't gaining any self esteem or you know self belief from my job. It was just I was proud of myself because I had been to hell, and now I had sort of clawed my way back to a life that was I I was so happy just to be able to participate in life again. I could get up and I could go for a walk and I could catch the bus into the city and I could do my six hour shift. And in the middle of it, I'd you know sit down in the food hall and eat something delicious for 20 minutes. And then it was such a low key life. And the me of even sort of six months earlier would never have been able to be okay with that. Um, And I think sort of going through that process meant that when I did when we had our first baby and, you know, with babies you do, you step away into a foreign land and, you know, particularly the first time around there's no, you know, there's no parent that I've met that is gets that first baby and feels on top of it and knows what to do. It's strictly learning on the job. It's daunting. Um, and I did think on a number of occasions I'm so glad that I had to navigate what I did when I fell apart. Do you think um,
0: part of the fact that you Manage to change the way you think that you are able to be in control of things now in terms of your stress levels, knowing when to set, step back. How much of that is has to do with hitting rock bottom? Because there are a lot of people who will be aware, like you said, living in that heightened state of anxiety, with that stress, with the negative talk, ne- negative self-talk, going. Okay, I'll pop off to my therapist and I'll or my counsellor, or I'll. Um, do this or I'll do that. But they it's all kind of just tinkering at the edges. Mm. Whereas when you hit rock bottom, you completely broke apart. Do, do you think that's part of the reason why you're able to own your recovery now?
1: Yeah, I do. And I say that in the book. I think, um, I think one of the lines, I think it's in the introduction, is that basically if rock bottom has anything going for it, it is the clarity that it delivers. And You know, I I do think that if I had been, um, if things hadn't got as bad as they did, I very well could have teetered along the sort of verge of burnout, minor sort of, you know, not thriving, but clinging on and getting through. Um, And I, I don't think that I would have made the changes I made if things hadn't gone as dramatically badly as they did. Because... You know, I mean, it was proof. The eighteen months before I fell apart was fairly, you know, it's compelling of how much denial we can um, put up with and how we can sort of persevere even when things are dreadful. Uh, and so I did feel, I mean, it was a it was a terribly scary experience, um, and it was horrendously stressful for my parents um, and also for me. But it was really quickly afterwards. I was so grateful that it had happened the way that it did because I did make changes that my life really did change. Um, Even though I didn't, you know, I didn't move cities and I didn't, you know, get a new family, I didn't get a new boyfriend. A lot of things stayed the same, but my life genuinely changed. Um, And I know that it only changed because I had the motivation to do it because I knew the alternative. Why did you write this book now? Um, That's a good question. So I... So obviously, one of the other things that that I that I write about in the book was that um I had always I had done a business degree and law, but the business degree was a communications degree. I'd always thought about journalism and media, and in the book I sort of tell the story of how that ended up happening. Um, but basically my first proper job after my break um, breakdown was working at BLW magazine as a reporter, and I then well as a researcher initially, but then as a reporter, and I have since then developed a career. In journalism, and obviously, I write a lot. I I had a blog when we were um, when we had our first baby. Like many other mums, I started a blog, and it was just this sort of sanity, life affirming gift that I had because I loved writing and people connecting. And um, so, effectively, I became a writer. And about three years ago, uh, a woman, Aviva Tuffield, who is um, a publisher, she approached me and sort of said, "You know, I'd really like to work on a book with you." is there a book you'd like to write? And because I do write a lot of women's issues, she was sort of like, you know, is there something there? And I just said I was actually pregnant at that stage with our third baby and in probably a rare show of wisdom, I actually said, you know (laughs) what, I would one day love to write a book but not now. I want to have this third baby. This will be our last child and I just want to enjoy that. Um, So I did and that was a great decision and I actually really actively, when I was home for those first six months after our third baby was born, I just loved it. And part of me, I actually thought, I'm so glad I'm not writing a book right now. I just loved it. Um, And then after I had had Ruby, um, Aviva got back in touch and we sort of started talking. And I I said to her, look, I don't, there were so many women's books out at the moment and I didn't at that point and I didn't have something in mind, but I have written about my experience with anxiety and I've spoken about it and it always resonates. So I sort of said to her, what do you think? Um, And we went from there and I kind of, it's been about 18 months writing. So sort of one or two days a week. Um, And what's that like? This kind of material
0: is quite triggering. I know that um, I can, I write about, I get anxiety too, and I've written about it. And when I'm actually writing a piece that's 800 words, it's easy to be distanced from it. If I had to delve back into where my anxiety was really bad before I started taking medication, I I think I'd find it quite triggering. I'm not sure. How, how have you found writing about it?
1: Um, I found it really quite cathartic. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's funny because a lot of people have asked me this question and I'm not, uh, I'm not making it up. I genuinely think that at the time of writing it, because I knew how comprehensively things got better for me, I didn't find it difficult to write. Funnily enough, though, through the editing process and the editors, um, it's, it's being published by a firm Press in Melbourne and they have done the most amazing job. And actually through the editing process, I found it harder, not triggering, but I just I saw how sad it was. You know, you made that comment before about how mean it was to be beating myself up for having an illness. And through the editing process, particularly because there were bits where they sort of really wanted me to flesh stuff out and reflecting on it, I was like, my goodness, that is sad. You know, I can't believe that you went through that. And so I definitely, um, yeah, there were parts of the editing process that I found quite hard. And I do have to say that for mum and Nick in particular, they found it quite traumatising to okay. read. I think because obviously they're not in my head and they know what happened at the time, they were with me and, um, but they obviously haven't spent 18 months tapping away, writing about it, exploring it, dealing with it. So for them to, you know, and, and also friends have read it and it, have said, you know, it, it's not um, it's not an easy read in certain parts, but ultimately it is actually a story of hope. And I do genuinely believe that because I think that we do, fortunately, you know, there are conversations happening about mental illness far more now than, than there used to be. Um but I think it is easy to believe that things, you know if you have anxiety that your life has to look a particular way. And the reality is that with treatment of all different kinds and with um, changes, you can, you know you can create an escape from it.
0: Yeah, I think that's so important. So often people, like you say, they'll talk about it, but they won't talk about the hope or, listen to people there's not enough people talking about their recovery so that's what's really important i think about your book um georgie i think we'll have to end it there thank you so much for coming in and speaking with us thank you so much for having me that's georgie dent she's a writer presenter and author of breaking badly and we'll put links to where you can get your mitts on the book in the notes of this episode in the next episode of Fee play love We'll be back with Helpline and our resident mothercraft expert Chris Minogue answering all your parenting questions.
1: There's many different ways of doing it, but if I would just stick to the basics, listening going in when it's an active cry, helping him to settle. The other thing that I think doesn't get across is that it takes between five minutes and 15
0: minutes to settle a baby. If you want to ask Chris your questions, you can email them to us directly. The email is helpline at theparentbrand.com.au. Feed, Play, Love is written and hosted by me, Siobhan Hunt.